0: To me faith isn't intellectual it it really is like it's cellular it's just kind of in us and it's what's left when everything else has failed us
1: Nadia Boltzweber is the author of three New York Times best-selling memoirs Pastrix The Cranky Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint Accidental Saints Finding God in All the Wrong People and Shameless A Sexual Reformation She's a Lutheran pastor, though as you may have guessed, not a very traditional one, and the founder of the house for all sinners and saints. On Substack, she writes the corners, because as she puts it, she always sits in the corner with all the other weirdos. Nadia is predominantly a preacher. She now spends most of her time preaching outside of a traditional setting, mainly in prisons. She has been a sinner, and she has been a saint. In this conversation, she talks about what those qualifiers really mean, how she understands the concept of faith, the relationship between poetry and prayer, and the dangers of innovation that is not rooted in tradition. In her own words, she is foul-mouthed for a preacher, grammatically challenged for a best-selling author, and surprisingly hopeful for a cynic. Welcome to The Active Voice. I am Sophia Eftimiatu, and here is Nadia Boltzweber. So... You founded the house or church? Can I call it the church of? Uh,
0: it's called the it, the church is called House for All Sinners and Saints. For all sinners yeah. and saints. Uh-huh.
1: I did wonder
0: what is what is the definition of a sinner and a mm. saint for you, or a sin? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. There's a writer named Francis Spufford, a Br- British writer who wrote a really brilliant book called Unapologetic, that is one of my all time favorite books. And he wanted to. He wanted to talk about what we call sin, which to me is just the sort of the fact that human beings are just innately flawed. And no matter what our intentions are or how good hearted we are, we're still going to fuck things up. We're still going to like hurt other people or be selfish in a way nobody knows but us or whatever. Like it's just in us. And he wanted to speak of that, but he knows that people have a hang-up about the word sin because it's been weaponized against so many of us in ways that are really damaging. And so instead of using the word sin, he used a term which is the human propensity to fuck things up. I love that. And I think that allowing for the truth of that actually allows us to be have a more gracious view of ourselves and others. I don't see it as the path towards low self-esteem or something to say it, I feel like it's true. And Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I think just saying, hey, look, you know, we might have different struggles, but we all have them. We're all in need of help in some way. You know, we're not, I want to write an anti-self-help book called You're Not Enough. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. There is enough there is enough you're so you're it's okay but like uh it doesn't have to be you you know like you can kind of rely on maybe some of the the virtues of your friends around you when you don't have enough you know i don't this whole thing's not an individual competition it's a team sport so what is a saint so a saint is just anybody uh, upon whom God has shown grace, which is all of us. That's why on my wrist in Latin, I have tattooed simul justus et picator, which means simultaneously sinner and saint. I have it on my necklace too, like 100% of both all the time. I think we get hung up when we start thinking anybody is all of one and not the other. Or that if we strive hard enough, we could become... You mentioned your tattoos and for
1: listeners who can't see you, um, you don't look a very traditional, it's not a very traditional look for a pastor.
0: (laughs) I think during my most formative years, I was part of a counterculture. Mm. So from ages, you know, when the first album I ever bought was the Ramones Road to Ruin when I was 12 years old so 41 years ago <laughs> and um I you know I was really lucky to be part of this um, alternative music scene in Denver this kind of punk scene in Denver we we had our own bands we had our own shows they weren't even legal venues and everyone knew each other and we're, it, this is like counter to the dominant culture we dressed counter to the dominant culture we ate foods that were different than the dominant culture you know it was it was just um we it, we had our own like a pirate art gallery you know which was like a co-op where people would show their art i think i was so glad to find a counterculture because i felt like such a weirdo compared to the the cultural setting that i was raised in so i think i wanted to kind of start a church for p- other people who felt a little bit like weirdos you know or who didn't feel that comfortable in a traditional church but has it changed now? Yeah, very years? much, yeah. Does that bother you or <laughs> <laughs> It's not it's not easy. I mean, when I left, the the average attendance was like 225 people every week and then I think now it's like 25 or 30. The pandemic was not good on this. It didn't help this church. So the churches that have more marginalized population and younger population didn't do as well from COVID. They didn't sort of rebound. What do you think that is? I don't know that I have a satisfying answer. I think it's that if people weren't doing extraordinarily well before the pandemic, it impacted them much deeper Mm -hmm. to the extent that probably they don't function on this. I don't function on the same level as I did before, you know. I think a lot of people stopped going to church because they couldn't and just have not found a way back to it. Do you think it also had an impact uh, on their faith? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, I know on my Substack, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of my readers who have some kind of belief in God, maybe even a belief in Jesus, uh, but absolutely don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. I mean, you look at the decline, especially in mainline Protestantism, right? So when we say that, we mean like Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, Lutheran, uh, congregational, you know, uh, that's mainline Protestant. So you look at the percentage of people who were showing up to those churches a generation ago compared to now it's you you project that out one more generation most of them are gone you can look at that data and say well people are not interested in religion at all right or maybe they're not interested in in uh, Christianity specifically but I've not found that to be true I've just found that the structure of traditional church appeals to fewer and fewer people because it sort of originated out of a cultural context that I think is becoming smaller and smaller right so you know I don't I don't even know if mainline Protestantism is going to survive one more generation but I think the church will be fine so I think people have conflated church as being like the building that people show up to and for an hour and you have this liturgy and and, and whatnot and sing these songs. But that's not really what church started out as. It started out in people's homes. And so I think it's probably going to maybe go back to that on some level. I don't have this anxiety thinking the church is dying. I think the church is being renewed through a baptism of fire maybe, but I, my hope is that what will remain will be the part that was the only important part to begin with.
1: Has it already affected the way you preach and how you go about it? And do, do you find yourself having reach out to these communities, reach out to people, like go out there and find
0: uh, the place rather than do it in a more organized setting? My work in my ministry is not actually for the church itself. It's for people who have an ear to hear some kind of, hopefully, honesty and spiritual teaching combined, because a lot of times when I hear spiritual teachings, they might even sound true, but they seldom sound honest, you know? What makes a trustworthy voice in that? Mm -hmm. My body has a reaction. I don't know how to put it, but there's this sort of wisdom that, like, when someone says something like true and honest at the same time i can feel it in my body you know some people make a living off of being sort of influencers who say things that might kind of be true but they never feel honest they feel like they're ignoring a darker side of our hearts you know like i always want somebody to really acknowledge the sort of more shadowy contours of my human heart and then talk about where some grace or hope or forgiveness is. Because I feel like when those things are ignored, I, they, it just fills me a little bit with despair, even though they're telling me something really chipper, you know? <laughs> so I, I like it when people, when writers or preachers are willing to be honest about their own struggles in a real way. And when I was in my parish, they would say that they like they loved having a preacher who clearly was preaching to herself and just like letting them overhear it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's more my approach. I really kind of only say or write things I need to hear. So there's this whole process that happens for me internally. And then I I'm just kind of reporting back to everyone. And then if it's like helpful to them, I'm like, amazing. I'm so glad.
1: That is. So it it reminds me of the other tradition of the memoirist or, you know, Joan Didion said exactly that in her essay about why keeping a notebook. And it's not about reporting a story or getting a character out there exactly right. The notes that she took, Mm -hmm. but it was about what she observed, how it connected to herself. And yeah. then she put it back out, metabolized right. into the world. And it that's sounds right. like that's what right. you're doing.
0: That's I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, it has to kind of have its way with me before I have anything to say about it. I write what I write because I'm desperate for more wisdom and compassion, not because I have an excess of it, you know? You deliver words in two very different
1: forms. Mm-hmm. One of them is preaching. Yeah. So you're... Getting into people's hearts and mm-hmm. minds through uh a, an oral tradition. Yes, the very old one. Yeah, yeah. And then but you also do that in writing, which moves a heart and a consciousness in a very different way. I wonder like how do you experience like the like you yourself as the composer of both these methods? Uh-huh. Like how yeah. do you go about it yeah. when you know that, oh, these are words that are gonna I'm gonna in a way perform and they're going to be spoken yeah. and right. rather than when you write oh. mm. and you know that That's they're a going to question. be experienced in the isolation mm-hmm. of someone's consciousness
0: well preaching always comes from a text so i have an assigned text that i'm working with and so it really is my encounter with that text given who i am now what's happening in the world now what I'm struggling with now, what I hear other people struggling with now, and then what does this text have to say maybe to us. So I always want to, in preaching, I have, I always want to preach something that is good news, but you usually have to hear the bad news first or else the good news doesn't sound quite as good. Um, So, And the good news always has to be about God's action in the world and who God is on our behalf. What passes for preaching in most contexts, both liberal and conservative, is some version of this. Here's the problem and here's what you should be doing about it. I feel like there's always some version of that. And I'm like, literally, my brain creates that for me already. Right. That that whole, I should be better, I should be trying harder, I should be more this and more that, I should meet this standard, I don't need a preacher telling me that, you know? And so I want the, the good news to be something, some liberating, beautiful, almost destabilizingly so beautiful thing about God. That's what I want to get to. And I want there to be some kind of direct address to those who are hearing my sermon. I don't always get there, but I try to. I try to actually say you in the sermon at the end, especially to let people know this is for you, you know. When I hear a sermon, I want somebody to break my heart.
1: That made me realize that you're, it's an interpretation of a text of another writer, basically. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah.
0: I did a podcast during the pandemic called The Confessional, and people came on and told me the worst thing they'd ever done. And so I'd write a short essay at the beginning to introduce it, and then uh, we'd hear a, an edit of the conversation. I would listen to that edit four or five, sometimes six times, and then I'd write a blessing for them. So I was, they were my text. Their story was my text that I was studying and letting it work upon me, and then coming up with some kind of benediction for them at the end. So it was similar to preaching in that way, you know. The other stuff, the essays, I have myself in my sermons, but I think I have myself more in my essays, you know. And I might be talking, I might be writing in conversation with a movie or somebody else's writing or whatever. And so it it's not quite as much me in conversation with a biblical text. What is the worst thing that you've ever done
1: <laughs> since we're on the
0: topic? <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, I uh, especially when I was drinking, I was not... Uh, I was not a reliable narrator.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to yourself or to others? <laughs> Anything.
0: You know, I definitely slept with people who were partnered with other people. Um, I definitely have regrets from some of the things I did, some of the ways I was a leader early on in the life of House for All Sinners and Saints. That's interesting. I can have this really sort of domineering aspect to me that people then think, oh, good leader, you know, (laughs) and there was something that happened. I won't go into the details of it, but there was something that I was so certain of Mm -hmm. that I fought and fought and fought. I was so committed to this narrative of what was going on that I was unable to hear any other narrative about what might actually also be going on. And people got hurt because I was unwilling to question the story I was telling myself and what my role in that story was and what I needed to do. I was a hundred percent wrong. I was wrong. And I was When so, did
1: you realize that?
0: Not till later. It took a while. But in retrospect. Oh, yeah, I was wrong, for sure. And the thing that was terrifying was how certain I was that I was right. And ever since then, I tried to remain sufficiently suspicious of myself at all times. How do you do that? How do you remain suspicious? I think it's the hardest thing for people to admit that they are wrong or that they were wrong or could be wrong. Well, fortunately, I spend an hour every Saturday in a basement of a church with a bunch of drunks. (laughs) So in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you get pretty... You get a lot of exercise <laughs> of that muscle, you know it's part of the deal, so i think I think just being around people who ha who do that work and can talk about it makes it more possible for me to exercise that muscle in my own life and not be terrified of it. You know, we're terrified of admitting we're wrong about something, you know often it it feels like you're i'd rather, it feels like I'm dying, you know
1: <laughs> speaking of dying. I'm going to play a very small clip yeah. of you giving a sermon oh. because it's so electrifying and oh I want gosh. people to experience it. Okay. So this was from, uh, it's from a few years ago. I think it's before the pandemic, which is interesting based on what you're talking about in this clip.
0: But right now, right now, I also need stories of resurrection. I mean, I'm sort of desperate for them. I know of all the stories in the Bible that are hard for us modern folks to believe that stories of people rising from the dead can sound especially crazy, defying as they do the laws of both physics and mortality, but I love them. I love stories of resurrection. I love stories of resurrection because I'm someone who's desperate for second chances and third chances and really just like all the chances. I love stories of resurrection because they're messy and they're weird. And stories of resurrection sink a hook of hope into me like nothing else can. And we could use some divine hope right now, could we not? We could use some resurrection up in here. We could use something a little more powerful than our virtues. (laughs) A little more reliable than our wokeness. A little more hopeful than our attempts to just try harder. I've tried trying harder. It doesn't make me free. It just makes me tired.
1: All right. So that, first of all, wow. (laughs) Like, I just want to see you do this
0: live. (laughs) It is the the central aspect of my vocational identity is that I'm a preacher. That's it. I mean, you're so, so gifted. And it's clearly your calling. But...
1: Here's the thing. One of the expressions that I hate the most in English is "what doesn't kill you makes you stronger," and I love the Heath Ledger uh, Joker line: "What doesn't kill you makes you weirder." Yes. And, <laughs> but you know, I realize that what doesn't kill you has an uh, implies an almost in there, whereas yeah, right. resurrection implies a death.
0: Yeah.
1: How are we expected? to come out of the other
0: side of that kind
1: of destruction. It's completely, you're you're dust. Yeah. And then
0: you have to rise. Mm. There's that great lyric from the Hold Study that says, she broke into the Easter mass, her hair done up in broken glass. She came in limping on broken heels and said, Father, can I tell your congregation how resurrection really feels? It's great. Wow. Great lyric. Yeah, I I guess when I talk about resurrection, it's not a form of like vapid optimism to me. It's it comes from seeing having sort of seen people think if this I could not survive if X happened, like I could not possibly live without my child. I could not I could not live if I got a a long prison sentence. I couldn't live. And seeing people so sure, and then seeing them live anyway, and they're not the same. It's not. It's not as resurrection is the worst self improvement scheme I've ever heard. of. <laughs> but like I've seen, my sister, uh, a child of hers was killed a year and a half ago, and then. And then she found a lump in her breast five weeks later, and so she's gone through these really brutal breast cancer treatments and the deepest grief anyone could possibly experience. And she will never be the same, ever. She will never be somebody who didn't have a child killed, right? She'll never be somebody who didn't go through all these cancer treatments, ever. And yet... The experience in the last month or two of hearing her sound more familiar to me, having, you know, uh, 20 months of going through all of this and not doing cancer treatments anymore and being able to sort of be outside and walk more and be become more of, quote, herself, you know, again, has um, been a joy. And there's, there can never be an expectation that after something like that, somebody will go back to who they were because it's absolutely impossible. But incredible grief and suffering is now incorporated into who she is. And yet it's uh, beautiful. It's almost like we don't even know who we are until some pretty horrible shit happens. That kind of suffering shows us things that nothing else can. And it doesn't mean anybody would ever choose it. And it doesn't mean it's like, I hate the idea of like redemptive suffering, that the church has really um, weaponized against people a lot. You know, in the Gospel of John, it says, a light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But in some translations, it says the darkness cannot comprehend it. I do believe that darkness cannot comprehend light. Like, a, like I, I fervently believe that a light can shine in the darkness. And light has an effect in darkness that darkness can't have on light, you know, like on some just basic level. And I guess I see that in our stories. It's part of your... Job to help people keep the faith in those moments. I don't know if it's to my job's to help them keep the faith. I think my job is to help them see that they never lost it.
1: Right. <laughs> what do you consider? To I be mean, faith?
0: to me, faith isn't intellectual. It it really is like it's cellular. It's just kind of in us, and it's what's left when everything else has failed us. It's that. It's the thing that's left.
1: So I've heard you say that you and your fellows are more comforted by mystery than you are by certainty.
0: Mm, mm -hmm.
1: And perhaps this connects a little bit to what you're talking about right now. There are these moments of silence and crowds that I think unite the crowd, like at a concert, those seconds after, you know, the last note and the clap.
0: Yeah, beautiful, yeah.
1: I wonder if there's like, if that's, if if there's a connection to the mystery that you're talking about... And what you just said about Mm -hmm. where faith is and that silence.
0: I think there is something beautiful about a knowing that's unconnected to, to words. It is like in our bodies, you know, in our breathing. There is this sweet knowing about our connection to God. God's loving connection to us. And of course, you know, a lot of ink and blood has been spilled over the years (laughs) trying to define it, you know. But in some way, we just, when the shit hits the fan, you know, when we're desperate, when we're absolutely terrified, we tend to call out to God in some way, you know. I
1: find a bit of a connection between poetry and prayer. Mm. And... Poems do work sometimes, like prayers Absolutely. for me. So there's a poem. Yeah, Hear, Yes. yes uh, very good, so thanks.
0: perhaps you can read it for us and yeah. tell us why you picked it. So this is called Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for the light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. The reason I love that poem is this is exactly what people tend to do with Scripture, or especially, specifically, Jesus' parables. They're like, well, what is it? What's the moral of the story? I'm like, oh my God, the the surest way to suck the life out of a parable is to reduce it to a moral teaching. Parables are meant to be really confusing. These parables, these texts are supposed to be wrestled with, and they're supposed to be eaten like honey. I find scripture to be this like endless well of meaning. And I also think that if you struggle with it enough, it will hand over the goods every time, every time. If you struggle with it enough, if you interrogate it enough, if you wear it around like a backpack enough, if you talk about your, to your friends about it, if you sing it instead of read it, all these things, it hands over something that nothing else does because Who we are when we approach scripture is different every time. We've lived more. What the world is, is different every time. You've said that you believe, I love this quote, by the way,
1: you you said that you've believed that innovation must be deeply rooted in tradition if it is going to be to have integrity. Mm -hmm. Does it worry you that the folks who are the innovators today are on the whole, as far as I can tell, very removed from anything that can be considered tradition mm-hmm. and perhaps uh, the way I interpret it from your words. And I wonder, what do you think the implications are for the future of humanity?
0: Ooh. It's a big question. Yeah. Anna. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be amazing if every tech company had an ethicist and a theologian as part of their board, you know, as part of the conversation in terms of what they do or don't do, that would be incredible. (laughs) I also think, you know, Americans are optimists uh, at our core, in a sense, that Americans were like, hey, anything is possible and let's move forward and how do we get there and the future is bright, you know, I mean, that's a sort of American ethos. And um, that's all well and good, and some love amazing things have come out of that. But everything has a downside, you know. (laughs) So to leave behind the accumulated wisdom of generations in order to move forward with something we believe will be better, but without that in conversation with the accumulated wisdom of generations, I think is the definition of hubris. And there's sort of not a lot of things to really stop that. I also think that even though we're optimists and we think the future's bright and anything's possible and yada yada, I I I think we have to remain, again, sufficiently suspicious of ourselves that um if we don't if we are not clear-eyed about Are the human propensity to fuck things up, and that being every human, and that being every coder and every tech founder and everybody, if we if we're not clear-eyed about that, just being part of the package and something to always be reminded of, not in a downer kind of way, you know, but in a like just truthful, honest way. If we don't do that, then, yeah, I think we're fairly screwed. You know, this is why this is why I think, you know, regulation is is often needed, because as we've seen, uh, people who accumulate the most resources and the, ro- and the most money can't just be trusted to do the right thing so that <laughs> their accumulation of resources and money isn't to the detriment of the masses. They won't do that themselves. You know why? Because they have the human propensity to fuck things up like every single one of us does. So that's why having communities say, okay, you know, this and no farther, Um, is is important for the flourishing of everyone Um, and yet it is that the idea of any kind of regulation is demonized by a lot of people are you optimistic though oh gosh no no um i mean (laughs) i am not idealistic about any human project not one Uh, not i'm not idealistic um i'm totally idealistic about God's ability to make beautiful things happen despite us. So I've seen that happen a lot in my life. And um, so I feel a lot of optimism about the Holy Spirit's ability to have terrible boundaries and to use all the wrong people to get shit done. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that, that fills me with hope. I've seen it. And pretty consistently, it's that has been borne out in scripture too, you know, so I look for that and I hope for that.
1: That's a good message to end on. Thank
0: you. You're welcome.
1: You can find more of Nadia's writing on Substack at thecorners.substack.com. That's T-H-E-C-O-R-N-E-R-S.substack.com. And if you would like to subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, you can do so at read.substack.com. That is R-E-A-D.substack.com.